The British people have voted to leave the European Union. They were cartwheeling. I will not relent in waging the struggle for freedom and security for the American people. Hello everyone and welcome to the Shadow of the Future, our podcast on global politics. My name is Monica Silva and I'm co-hosting with Nini Basaria. In today's episode, we are going to talk about the European Union's relation with Hungary by revisiting the Tavares report of 2013. Our guest is no other than Rui Tavares himself, a historian, a writer, the founder of Libre, a Portuguese party based on liberty, left Europe and ecology, a former member of the European Parliament and for the Portuguese speakers in Hungary, who is also the author of an amazing podcast about stories from history called Agora Agora e Mais Agora. Olá, Rui. Bem-vindo. Thank you very much for joining us. Olá. Obrigado, Mónica. Hi, Nini. And uh, Yonapot to everybody. Yonapot. Rui, let me start with this. The Tavares report drew attention in 2013 to certain practices in Hungary that were a threat to check and balances, democracy and the rule of law. It expressed concerns over constitutional changes, with the independence of the judiciary, with the media and even with minority rights. But eight years have passed since then and if we read the report today and cross it with the present concerns of the European Union, we see that it is still incredibly accurate. What I mean is far from being outdated. So I guess my first question is, how come is this report still so relevant? Well, thank you very much for the question. Uh, it's already a very difficult one. Um, the, the, the report is, I think, still accurate because uh, it detected a trend, a systemic trend in the institutional, constitutional, legal, administrative, political changes that were um, set in march by the Hungarian government after 2010 uh, that all had the same bias, the same uh, um, tendency to centralize power. So the main you know, conclusion of the report was that if the Hungarian government would go on on that direction, with that uh, sense of travel, so to say, uh, the member state government itself and the member state of the European Union would logically end up infringing the values of the Union in a serious and persistent way, which is, of course, the language that we have in Article 7 of the Treaty of the European Union, that when a serious and persistent breach of the values of the European Union occurs, uh, then there has to be a decision by the European Council to, you know, in, if it needs be, to withdraw certain rights of the member state. Uh, and this is what has not happened. The Council of the European Union and the European Council have not acted 
on the information that we gathered between 2010 and 2013. So the reason why the report is still accurate is because a key institution of the European Union, namely the European Council, uh, or the Council where national governments are represented, have not acted on the report. They have allowed for this uh, breaching of the values of the European Union to continue. And by doing that, they are running a great risk. They are running the, uh, the, the risk of completely undermining the credibility of the European Union as it happened before with the League of Nations. So it is really a, 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 a grievous responsibility, or should I say a, an absence of responsibility from the part of the Council to have not acted during almost 10 years on, on this question. And the crisis that now many people have seen in the, in the last you know, few months with summits that take a long time, and where finally prime ministers, chiefs of state and government are talking about the question of rule of law and democracy inside the European Union. This crisis has now become, you know, a kind of a cause célèbre. It has become famous. It's, uh, you know, international newspapers are writing about it and we see that there's a, lots of, of talk about the rule of law crisis in the European Union. But in my view... The crisis has always been there in the last 10 years. It has already done a great deal of harm to the European Union. And the fact that the crisis is now, you know, open out in the air, that people can understand that there is a crisis, is actually a very positive thing. Because now there is debate about this. And member states are starting to understand two things. If some member states do not respect the values of the European Union, uh, it is not just an internal question. It ends up also being a question of the integrity of the internal market. It is a question of the integrity of the European budget. But it is mostly a question of the credibility of the European Union when democracy collapses in one European country. It never collapses alone. This is a kind of a contagion, like in a pandemic. Uh, we have seen this in the past. When you have a collapse in democracy, in rule of law, in human rights, in one given country, you are also putting at risk the same values in other countries. So I hope that now at least the Council understands the uh, very you know, dangerous error that they did by not acting during 10 years, so that they can go back to the report, go back to the ideas that were born with the report, and start to implement them. Also because if they don't act... Uh, the, the backsliding in democracy will only get will only get worse. I am convinced that uh, you know the, the the virus of rule of law and democratic backsliding has mutated, and that now that you know the, the judiciary has already been co-opted by the political power, that the constitutional courts in some countries are not independent anymore that the media landscape has been completely homogenized by the parties and the elites in power with political and economic power, that the next step 
is actually to have fraudulent elections. That's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, um, authoritarians all around the world are complaining about fraudulent elections is because they usually complain about the things that they want to do. And if we, in the future, maybe in the near future, if we start having fake fraudulent elections, elections that are neither fair nor free, and we already have elections in, in the European Union that are maybe free, but they are, they are certainly not fair. What will happen is that we will have summits of the European Union where legitimate heads of state and government will sit side by side with people that have maybe not been elected in a legitimate way. That will be the end of the backsliding. That will be the point where there will be no point to the European Union. We don't have much time. So I hope that, you know, uh, national governments finally understand the dangers that we are running into in the European Union. The amount of stuff you were able to uncover with the report was kind of shocking, but at the same time, it seemed like we were dealing with more of an isolated situation. Today, we understand that that was not the case. There was a conscious attempt, a strategy from the Hungarian government, little by little, to jeopardize the rule of law. Do you think that the inaction of the European Council is related with that, with the fact that only now we fully understand that what happened around then was not an isolated thing, but a deliberate strategy? Yes, it goes even a little back, a little bit back in time than that. I think the 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 um, the backstory to this is in the nineties, and in the kind of general optimism of that decade that uh, uh, that I also you know uh, uh, participated on. It was a very optimistic decade after the fall of the Wall of Berlin. Uh, it was, you know, the, the idea was that uh, democracy was triumphant and it would always be triumphant. It was, you know, the, the, the famous uh, Francis Fukuyama thesis on the end of history. Uh, countries would sooner or later reach the stage of being, you know, rule of law abiding democracies with market economies and they would not want to go back. So uh, the the European Union of the 21st century started being built actually in the 90s. Uh, it was more or less the same politicians with more or less the same frame of mind and more or less the same, you know, optimism that in my view as a historian betrayed a kind of a naive view of history. Uh, I, I remember when in the year 2000, uh, for the first time, there was a hint of a first possible problem regarding respect uh, for human rights in the European Union uh, when an Austrian government with a far-right party uh, was formed. There was a, a kind of a hiccup. And, you know, that's actually the reason why Article 2 ended up in the treaties, because up until then, up until the 2000s, we had had many new European treaties, Maastricht, Amsterdam, Nice. And in the end, you know, 
only in 2009 with Lisbon, we started having an article that said that the union was founded upon the values of, you know, democracy, rule of law, etc., etc. What this implies is that people, did this imply that people were not, you know, uh, uh, did not like democracy or rule of law? No, on the contrary. They were so much convinced that rule of law and democracy was to become the, you know, the natural standards in the European continent that they did not see the need to put it in the treaties and to say that, you know, people will have to respect rule of law and democracy because, you know, and fundamental rights because the thinking then was, uh, why would anyone want to disrespect it? So this is one one way in which I think that, you know, my report being actually a a teamwork, but it helped that I was not a lawyer, I was not a jurist, I was a historian. Historians tend to have, a, you know, a longer term view and, you know, tend to, to uh, have, you know, temporal comparisons uh, handy. I was actually reading when I was, uh, you know, researching for the report, just for coincidence, it was not that I I was reading that because of of my report on Hungary, but I was reading uh, Zara Steiner's book on the lights that failed, which is a book about interwar Europe and how, you know, the first dawn of democracy in the continent after World War I was very quickly overturned. And in the 30s, most of Europe was already, you know, uh, ruled by authoritarian regimes. And when you read that book, you understand quite easily how this can happen. You know, that, as I said before, when you have a problem in one European country, it's usually never an individual problem. It kind of contaminates the other countries around it because if one, you know, authoritarian-minded ruler wants to amass, wants to concentrate power upon his hands, then, you know, his neighbor, the other authoritarian-minded ruler in the next country will kind of, you know, they they tend to observe each other, watch each other and imitate each other. They will know where the new limits are and each of them will, you know, set the limits of authoritarianism a uh, a little back further and then the next one, you know, can go even a little back further with also the excuse that the others have already done it. Uh... The main point is that I did believe that it was a kind of a historical regularity that now and then you have politicians that want to have lots of power. You know, it is strange to say that because today it's completely obvious. But by then, and I think that this goes a little bit to your question, uh, by then it was kind of a, of a, of an amazing thought to even imagine that that could happen here. After all, we were Europe. You know, we were a club of democracies, a very developed, sophisticated part of the world. Uh, and when people told me this, you know, we don't have to worry as much about, you know, a, a, a member state of the European Union as we routinely in the European Parliament, we had debates on, you know, violations of, human rights in China or Venezuela or, you know, 
Colombia or wherever wherever else. Uh, and people tell me, you know, this doesn't happen in Europe. I will say, on the contrary, it is in Europe that these things happened. It is in Europe that we have had these experiences many times in the past. Oh, but that's the past. Well, you know, for a historian, the past is never completely the past. I also remember having a, a British member of the European Parliament uh, saying something that I have never accepted, which is, you know, I understand that you are going to uh, do a report on a new member state of the European Union. One of these Eastern countries, they have recent democracies, young democracies. So it's natural that uh, we keep an eye on them. But don't you think about applying the same sets of standards to the United Kingdom? We are an old democracy. We are the mother of democracies. Uh, and I asked him, do, do, do you think that this cannot happen in the in the UK? And he was telling me, no, of course not. Well, and today we, yeah, you have had attacks on uh, Supreme Court judges in the UK. You have had an assassination of a member of parliament. And you have had a suspension of parliament for a few weeks. And you have had, you know, parliament ending up voting on a, on a new treaty with the European Union that they did not even read. So this can happen anywhere in Europe. I always avoided the idea, as, you know, my perhaps my British colleague would like to have, uh, that we need only to focus on, you know, certain member states that we can be suspicious of. I think that this can happen everywhere. So, yeah, the, 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 the long-term view and actually using your imagination, you have at, at the point when you write such a report, you have to think, you have to try to think with the mind of the authoritarian ruler. You will have to say to yourself, if I wanted to uh, amass, you know, almost you know, total power over a society where I would control the society in, in a, in a, in a, you know, a political setting like the European Union, where I cannot do it outwardly. I cannot do a coup d'etat and I cannot put troops, uh, uh on the street. Uh, if I want to do it, you know, in a way that is a kind, uh, you know, how, how would I do it? Well, I will start with the media. As it started actually in the, the beginning of the second urban government in 2010. And of course, I would not just censor the media or I would not just, you know, uh, um, abolish newspapers or destroy them. I would have to invent a legal setting whereby maybe if they don't fulfill certain obligations, they will have to pay certain fines. And the fines will be so high that they will be out of business. Okay. So, and if I did that, what, what would I do next? Well, I would focus on the judiciary power because those are the ones who can receive the complaints of the people that are wronged. So I need to have my allies there. And after that, what, sh what should I do? And it goes on and on. And, you know, it's the, 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 the recipe, so to say, just fitted what was happening in 2010, 11, 12, and 13. Uh, you say that I, you know, gather lots of information, but the reality is that, you know, the Hungarian government did that for us. There was lots of text, 
lots of laws, uh, amendments to the constitution, then a new constitution, and then amendments to that new constitution. You have to ask yourself if you've just created, you know, a new constitution that you voted alone and, uh, with no opposition participation, with no uh, uh, contribution from opposition parties, why do you change it? Well, you change it because the constitutional court has deemed certain laws unconstitutional and if you have the majority to do it again, then you just change the constitution and the objections of the constitutional court can no longer be sustained because what they objected to is now in the constitution. So these are actually, you know, quite obvious moves. If you are brave enough to interpret them according to the framework that a, an authoritarian regime is being built. But if you don't apply that framework, you just don't understand why all those moves, hundreds, thousands of legal, institutional, constitutional uh, uh, changes, why do you create a new data protection authority when you already have one, and then you let the mandate of the first independent data protection authority labs and you keep the one that you've created with the person that you've appointed yourself, which is, you know, the, the, the same method that you apply also with other independent agencies. It only makes sense if you understand that this person is trying to amass lots of power. Uh, so what seemed kind of incredible to say in 2000 and, and, you know, 11, 12, 13 has become only you know, common sense today. At the time you accepted an invitation from the Hungarian government to personally assess the situation on the ground and you had to spend three days in Budapest. Mm. But you also invited Hungarians to send their comments and feedback on the report. Could you tell us how that fieldwork contributed to the report and what kind of comments did you receive from Hungarians? Yes, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, it, it happened that at the same time where I was working on the Hungarian report, uh, we had a financial crisis in Portugal. And you may remember from the Eurozone crisis that, uh, you know, countries that were deeply indebted, they uh, no longer were able to service their debt. This happened with Greece, with Cyprus, with Ireland and with Portugal. And... Then these countries had to have loans and they had, you know, officially it was the technical assistance of the so-called Troika, the IMF, the European Commission and the European Central Bank. But from the inside, from the countries themselves, it was seen as a kind of a, you know, foreign, almost colonial imposition where uh, you were being surveyed by foreign powers. So this was happening in my country and I was deeply aware of the kind of sensitivities that is involved. So I needed to make sure that uh, my work was conducted in a way that was fair, but also that it was seen as fair, that it was objective, uh, but that I could try to do as much as I as possibly could be made already in the media landscape that was very much controlled by the government to inform uh, my Hungarian fellow citizens, because they were my fellow citizens of the European Union, of what I was doing. So I had many ideas. One of the ideas is that I 
needs to learn some Hungarian at least. Uh, because I, I used to see on TV here in Portugal when these people from the Troika would land in the airport and go have meetings only with the bureaucrats and not talk directly to the people. Um, they sometimes would give an interview to a journalist, but, you know, a very quick one, and they would only speak in English. And, you know, the feeling that everybody had, and I myself as a Portuguese had, was that, you know, the kind of things that they were saying here, they could be saying anywhere, and they would not make an effort to understand the sensitivities of the Portuguese people in that in that case. So I decided that I would never make that mistake with the Hungarians, that they, you know, that, that they deserved to be treated with respect, even with deference, that they deserved to see that, you know, Uh, I had been tasked with a mission by the European Parliament to write a report, but that uh, that I deeply respected Hungary and cherished the 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 you know place of Hungary in the European Union, and that the things that I would say about Hungary I would say about any other uh, member state. So, first thing that happened when we visited the Hungarian Parliament was that we were you know prepared to talk about. Uh, the new constitution and all the other changes. But when we started meeting the, uh, uh, you know, political groups in the Hungarian parliament, all the parties were speaking about something else that we didn't, that we didn't know about, that we completely ignore, uh, which was that there was a new electoral law. And be because the, the, the services of the European parliament are, you know, so competent and because we always had up-to-date news On Hungary, this was, you know, quite uh, dumbfounding for us. New electoral law, what are you speaking about? Oh, well, this law was just introduced last Friday, I think it was. It was introduced via a private member's bill, which meant that it was not a bill that was introduced by the government or by a party, but it was just one member of the Hungarian parliament that had introduced a new electoral law. And there we were already, we were already in a ground that we knew uh, much better because one of the changes uh, in the rules of the Hungarian parliament was that private members' bills would have an expedite procedure. They would go must, much faster, you know, to approval in parliament, which is actually quite the opposite of what usually happens in other parliaments. And at first sight, it seems very democratic because you think, wow, you know, an individual member of the parliament can, you know, uh, introduce a law and have it voted rapidly. But what happens is that that vote happens with almost no debate. So something as important as an electoral law was being introduced with just a couple of days notice and it was going to be voted. Uh, and change the electoral system via an individual member's bill. So this was the first shock. Then there was there were other, you know, so to say, bizarre uh, events, uh, like we always had uh, the the um, um, you know accompaniment by uh, staff of the foreign affairs uh, ministry, and they would insist on. Uh, you know, attending every uh, meeting, including meetings with the judicial power. 
which we thought was against the separation of powers. Uh, when we spoke to them, they, they were obeying orders from above and they were adamant that they, they would need to be in all meetings. Uh, we accepted that, but some of the members, actually members in the right-wing parties that were there with us, shadow rapporteurs, that had a deeply anti-communist, you know, uh, ideological tradition and worldview, they were shocked because they would then comment privately that, you know, this seems, this seems like a kind of a Stalinist or communist method. And these were, you know, right-wing, sometimes very conservative members of the European Parliament saying so. Then by the end of the visit, we had many interesting meetings with NGOs, with uh, politicians, with uh, um, academics, uh, with uh, judges, etc., etc. We heard, you know, uh, favorable favorable views of uh, the government and you know unfavorable views and in the end we had a meeting uh, with the you know foreign press secretary a kind of a you know a, a high level uh, servant of the government who had the task to deal with uh, uh, with the foreign press and he met with all these members from the European Parliament and we sat down to lunch, to have lunch, and he started uh, talking about, in a very defamatory way, about a Hungarian journalist in Vienna, someone that, you know, most of my colleagues didn't know about, uh, a man called Paul Landvoy, who, you know, uh, uh, left Hungary after the 1956 revolution and has lived in uh, Austria for, for many decades. Uh, I had known about him because I had read lots of books on Hungary and some of, of, of the books that I read were by him. Um, but this, uh, um, you know, uh, attaché for, for the press that then went on to be the uh, Hungarian consul in New York, he started to say that he had documents on this journalist that would prove that this journalist had been a collaborator with the communist regime and that had given information to the secret service then and that we should not believe anything that this journalist said because you know that, you know, tonight there will air a documentary on Hungary in Austrian TV. So I just wanted to for you to be on notice about this journalist. Uh, by the end of that lunch, people were really shocked because that was the kind of, you know, uh, strong arm defamatory tactic that authoritarian governments use to badmouth uh, journalists. And by the end of the lunch, we were, you know, exchanging looks. And I saw that particularly my right-wing colleagues were deeply concerned with what we saw under the hood. And actually what I'm saying here is something that I'm saying for the first time in, a, in, a, in, a, in an interview. Uh, we gathered lots of objective data and facts. That is what the report is based upon. It's a completely objective report that, you know, uh, uh, try as they may, uh, the Hungarian government has never succeeded in refuting. 
not a single paragraph of that report has been successfully refuted. But the reason why the report was approved, and it was even approved with right-wing votes and with many right-wing abstentions, was because of the heavy-handed tactics of the Hungarian government. They were so uh, afar from what is normal in a government that is a democratic government that has nothing to hide, that they actually ended up alienating even their allies. And, you know, although they, of course, still have allies in the EPP and in the, uh, and in the international far right, I think that, you know, many politicians, even in, in right-wing parties, now understand what kind of uh, rule is the rule of uh, Mr. Orban in, in Hungary. Now they realize the tactics have not become less heavy-handed, and that's one, you know, that, that that's part of what answers to 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 your question and why you know the the problem is still there, but probably now many people see it. Now uh, you also asked about comments by Hungarians, so I started getting lots of email as well, and that that is kind of part two from you know learning Hungarian. Uh, you know, going on Hungarian TV, trying to say a few sentences in Hungarian and then explaining, you know, myself to the Hungarian people and showing respect. Uh, when I started getting email, there was lots of hate email, you know, uh, even death threats. Um, and and there was also lots of support. So uh, in my office, what we decided to do, it was actually, you know, a collective work with my assistants was that maybe the best, you know, uh, way to do it because it was impossible to answer individually all the email was to write a letter, a letter to my fellow Hungarian, uh, you know, uh, to my Hungarian fellow citizens of the European Union. And in that letter, explain everything about what is an European Parliament report. Why did I get this report? Why, you know, how can a Portuguese citizen relate, a Portuguese MEP relate to the problems in Hungary? Uh, how I would expect if it was the other way around and I had, you know, a democratic backsliding in Portugal, I would expect and I would actually uh, want for a Hungarian MEP to come to Portugal and to fight for uh, my democracy because, you know, my democracy is your democracy in the European Union. Uh, so I wrote this letter and had it translated into Hungarian and everybody would get an individual word and then the letter. You know, thank you for your message. Uh, I am getting lots of email uh, I wrote something that I would like you to read, which is my explanation of, you know, the work that I'm doing. And you know what? There was lots of reversals. Lots of people wrote very angry emails, then wrote back, and they said, you know, I still do not agree uh, with, uh, you know, uh, what you're doing, but uh, thank you for answering, and I respect what you're doing, and I see that you're, you know... Uh, behaving in a way that is respectful. Some other people would even, you know, change their mind and say, now I see, yes, it's, you're right, and if the opposite would happen, 
it will be just justified in you know someone from another country coming and assessing the what was happening and of course some people did not change their view or their aggressivity but i was happy that you know the the the, the same principles not only of fairness and objectivity because you can you can be fair you can be objective and at the same time not show sensitivity and i think that a, a big part of this is you need to show respect and sensitivity to the to the people involved of course then uh, what happens is that you know the, the the adversaries of the report in hungary and namely the government have to make an extra effort at distorting your position caricaturing you and inventing reasons whereby they will say the report was made by the time there was no Soros plan or Soros, you know, uh, strategy. So the story that was invented in 2013 and 14 was that we were on the payroll of uh, German utility companies that actually, you know, wanted to wanted to make Hungarians pay high prices for electricity and that they were, you know, somehow we were uh, in the pocket of this of these companies when you know they resort to this kind of of uh, rhetorical strategy then you know that they need to invent something because you're on the right way they are not attacking you with the truth they are attacking you with lies thank you very much Rui. it's interesting you say that because as someone living in hungary for almost a decade i would dare to say that from the moment you decided to write a letter to hungarians to learn the Hungarian language, to ask Hungarians for feedback, you were probably successful in passing the idea that you were not lecturing anyone, but actually trying to help. This is the click that they probably needed to understand that you're on their side. And I think that makes the difference for the Hungarian people, although this would be a whole new topic for a podcast. So I'll, I'll move on, on to the next question. The Tavares report proposes some solutions, like the creation of an independent body to reinforce the Copenhagen criteria, the creation of an emergency mechanism for compliance with fundamental values, and even the setup of a joint review on the rule of law. Why did you run away from the existing mechanisms, like Article 7, or even applying economic sanctions? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, before I answer this question, let me just make say something about wh what you just said on being on the side of of Hungarians and Hungary. And th that's completely right. That's that's the side where I always wanted to be. Uh, I think that, you know, different as Portugal and Hungary may be, there are some things that we have in common. And one thing that we have in common is the sense of having been abandoned by Europe. Of course, you know, Hungary had a dictatorship from the left and, uh, you know, the fact that I'm, f I'm from the left does not stop me recognizing that uh, there are dictatorships of the left and some of them quite brutal and totalitarian as the one that Hungary suffered. And Portugal had a dictatorship from the right. When the rest of Europe was liberated, uh, you know, people usually say, you know, Eastern Europe was forgotten. But not only Eastern Europe was forgotten, also the Iberian Peninsula was forgotten, Spain and Portugal. And Portugal actually had 
the longest running dictatorship in the European, um, you know, 20th century, if you count European Union members. Of course, you know, you have the Soviet Union uh, countries and then you have another kind of dictatorship that was even longer than the one in uh, in Portugal. But in Western Europe, it was the longest running dictatorship. So an extra reason for, uh, you know, a Portuguese politician to understand Hungary well. But at the same time, I had the experience of seeing that things that would happen, things that I would say or things that would happen in votes in the European Parliament, because we got the news clippings from Hungarian press translated the next day in the European Parliament, we actually had the kind of real-time experience of seeing already the changes in the media landscape that were the result of the actions by the Hungarian government already not only being implemented, but also, you know, already being in effect. I would say, you know, something, uh, you know, as you were saying, you know, not lecturing uh, someone. And the other day I would read the most, you know, unbelievable, um, unbelievable things about what I had said and the, 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 the tone that the things would come back to me in the Hungarian press who was, you know, uh, the tone of someone that not even I would like. So now to your question. Uh, well, part of it is related because, of course, this is an ongoing process. So uh, after our visit to Budapest and after our uh, work in the European Parliament, it was very clear that the majority in the European Parliament was starting to see the problem or that they were not starting. They were already realizing there was a, a, a deep problem. They could maybe disagree on the extent of the problem. Uh, but not yet two-thirds of the parliament saw the problem. Maybe because it was too recent, maybe because they were, you know, they, 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 they didn't want to believe uh, that something like that could happen in Europe, maybe because they were under the sway of the Hungarian government that was, you know, developing very vigorous diplomatic efforts in the European parliament, visiting you know, many uh, members of the European Parliament directly, individually, in their offices, they were allocating lots of resources to uh, doing a kind of a of a uh, of a rear guard fight against the the report. It was clear that there were not two thirds of the Parliament, and in order for the European Parliament to activate Article Seven, you need two thirds. So in the end, the report it was my draft, but uh, uh, it is a report of the European Parliament. It reflects uh, the, the the consensus that you can have in the European Parliament at a certain point. So the consensus that I could get my colleagues to accept is that all these trends that are happening in Hungary, they are systemic. This was already a big move from the position of the European Commission. And then you have a paragraph, I don't remember the number of the paragraph, but it's the paragraph in the the article in the report that is a kind of a hinge in the report. Uh, it is the turning point where we say not only that this is systemic in nature, but also if this goes on, 
this will result in inevitably in um, serious and persistent breach of the values of the European Union. That sentence is not there, you know, by chance. It is because it is the, the words of Article 7. So we were not activating Article 7 with two-thirds. We didn't have the votes to do it then. But we inserted the language of Article 7 into the report. And we said that this is inevitable. If this goes on, we are already at the point where this is a matter of concern, this is systemic, this is serious, and it will inevitably be a breach that warrants Article 7. And then what we say is that we did not use Article 7, but we also did not not use it, because what the report says is that the Parliament uh, uh, preserves the right to assess this uh, situation you know, uh, constantly and to update this report by voting on uh, uh, implementing Article 7. Uh, then I left Parliament. After a while, my, my colleague Judith Sargentini uh, uh, inherited the report. And when she saw that she had the two-thirds and that there was a parliamentarian consensus on that, then what she did was reopen the Tavares report and complement it with the Sargentini report, update it, and vote on Article 7. And by then, there were two-thirds in the European Parliament. Now, if at a certain point you only have Article 7, but Article 7 cannot be used because there is a political blockage in Article 7, then you have to, to, to understand that you need also other measures, other kind of you know, uh, mechanisms that you need in order to um, uphold the same values. The treaties of the European Union are not saying to you that, you know, the Union is founded upon the values of fundamental rights, democracy, uh, rule of law, etc., etc. But the only thing that you can do about it is, if you have the votes, use Article 7. But until you have a situation that is so serious that by using Article 7, you are withdrawing the voting rights of the member state, you are withdrawing rights of the member state in the European Union, you're doing something that is almost next to expulsion of the member state from the European Union, which you cannot do according to the treaties. So you, you, you are doing, you know, the, 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 the next before that step. But meanwhile, you can, you can do anything. That's not, and I want to be clear on this because there are still some politicians that, you know, try to argue that this is the, 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 the case that, you know, In the treaties of the European Union, you either have a serious problem in human rights and you stand back and do nothing, or if you have the votes, you use Article 7. No, on the contrary. You know, not only Article 2 says that these are the values of the European Union, but then Article 3 on the goals of the European Union says that the first goal of the European Union is to promote these values and to promote them in everything that we do. So the indication of the treaties is quite clear to me. It tells legislators, it tells politicians that they need to do their most to fulfill the promise of the European Union regarding democracy and rule of law. And if they cannot use it 
if they cannot use Article 7, they have to find other ways. Actually, we are, we are still living that problem. That problem has left the European Parliament because the European Parliament now has two-thirds for Article 7. But that problem is now residing in the Council because the Council does not have enough votes for Article 7.2. Because, of course, you know, there is a cross-veto between Poland and Hungary, something that we had warned about, that, you know, the treaties were only prepared to deal with one member state that presented a rule of law problems. If you have two member states, they will each other, they will each use their veto to cover for the other. So now the Council is in the same situation that we were in the European Parliament in the beginning of the decade. They have, they have, they have Article 7, but they cannot use it. On to your question. I have already answered why didn't we use Article 7. It was still very early in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in our history. Uh, most people did not yet see the danger that was posed by the kind of authoritarian trend in the Hungarian government. Uh, I think that the European Parliament was actually prescient. We saw the problem before many other institutions, but it was 2013, it was not 2020. We, don't, we did not have the two-thirds. Why not financial penalties? I have to confess that my, my view has, has evolved because, well, in a way, we always knew that if you don't, if you're inactive, you end up having to discuss money. But in 2013, I was suspicious of using money as a kind of a lever uh, again, or, you know, uh, regarding fundamental rights. Why? Well, on the one hand, uh, because the Hungarian government had approved the law uh, whereby any fines levied by the European Union, the ECJ or the Commission, would be automatically transcribed into tax raises that would be paid by the Hungarian citizens. This was a very smart but, you know, almost devilish stratagem on their part. Because if you fine the government, if you levy a fine and you say you have to pay X millions or billions or whatever for these violations, and they say, okay, we'll just use this law, we will, uh, uh, you know, create an extraordinary tax, we are, going, we are going to call this tax the Brussels tax or the EU tax or the Tavares tax, and, you know, regular people in Hungary will have to pay out of their pockets. Actually, that, that was one of our victories. We managed to get the Hungarian government to withdraw that law. But when the report was being written, there was still that, it was one of the recommendations of the report, and that was still one of the problems. If you uh, use financial penalties, you will directly punish the people, not the politicians. But even if you don't have that law, well, you're still dealing with fi finite resources of the state, so indirectly you are going to punish the wrong people. And also, what happens if your answer to fundamental rights violations and violations of the values of the European Union is, you know, um, taking away European Union funds 
but the country that poses the problem, you know, the, the, the danger to uh, Article 2 and the values of the European Union is not a recipient of funds, but is a net contributor. Because we have to think about that also. Uh, maybe, you know, in the future, it's not going to be Hungary, but the Netherlands that can have maybe an authoritarian prime minister that will try to amass power. And if you say, okay, we'll take away your, you know, EU funds, they will say, oh, what's the problem with that? We don't that we don't get cohesion funds because we are not poor. And actually, we give more money to the EU than what we get. So we will just not give this money to the EU. Uh, you know, authoritarian regimes can also happen in rich countries. So you have there a problem. So it's not the ideal tool to use. It has become, with time, you know, the, 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 the inevitable tool that you're going to use. Because a big part of the relation between the EU and the governments of the member states, you know, passes through money. And also because now everybody knows that, you know, uh, in certain member states, and Hungary has been very thoroughly researched as being the case where you have more frauds with the use of European funds. There's lots of journalistic evidence of people, you know, Uh, getting rich by the use of EU funds. To wrap up, you know, that has aggrieved governments, the other governments in the EU, and that has aggrieved also the public opinion of governments in the EU and people are starting to say, why am I giving money for, you know, Prime Minister X to enrich his brother, his father, their, uh, you know, childhood friends and so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, if, if the, it's, it's kind of an inevitability in the European Union, when the debate starts to get sour, it's terms about money. <laughs>